Please take your Bibles. Have them handy if you would. Uh, Once again, we we are in in a brief topical series, working through interpretation at the beginning of our um, foray into the revelation of Jesus Christ. I've not preached prophecy in in, in several years now, at least end times prophecy, Um, and we are on our way to that. But but as I've mentioned, it is so important for us when we understand the the dramatic differences that people come to in interpreting particularly end times events, that we understand the foundations of why it is we choose the method we choose. And it's not just because it's the one that sounds best to us, but it's the one that meets with the criteria of our interpretive method. So we've covered many things. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Over the past couple of weeks, establishing the rules by which we govern general interpretation of the Bible. We've considered the broad concepts, foundational rules which inform our study. And this week we're going to focus on the unique rules added to those that we've already considered which undergird our study of prophecy specifically. Uh, there's still so much could be, that could be said about the, the, the elements of Bible interpretation. I'm obviously giving you the Cliff Notes version. There's so much uh, out there in regard to this for reasons of time and practicality uh, that has to simply be left unsaid. But, but let's think practically about how we interpret anything for a moment. We talked last week about the idea of literal interpretation, and we use that word natural interpretation. If I were to give you a history book, or a poetry book, or a fictional novel, and ask you to read each one of them and to tell me what it's about, your, your methods of interpreting each one of those genres of literature is going to be quite different, isn't it? A history book is intended to be read and interpreted literally, that you take the facts and you take them at face value. You, you would hope that they're not going to be trying to give you subtle messages or, or transcendent themes because that's not what a history book is about. A history book is about taking the facts and giving you the facts, or at least it used to be. I don't know if that's the way it is anymore, but that's the way it used to be. A fiction novel, of course, uh, is a work that is not true. But uh, as we read fiction, we, we find that it employs strong uses of illusion and comparisons and allegories in order to teach us truths. So fiction is not truth, but it is meant to be a guide unto truths, right? Fiction is only good if it has a, a deeper concept to it. If it's a fun story, but that story has to be rooted in, in, re, in real concepts, in, in, in human nature, in transcendent truths. You're asked to see themes, meanings that rest under the surface of the actual story being told. When you read a novel by Charles Dickens, you're reading an interesting novel about people and choices and decision-making, but undergirding those choices and undergirding um, all all of those, those elements of the story are themes, right? Themes of right and wrong, of justice and injustice, of choices and of consequences, We look for those themes and we draw those themes out to understand the deeper levels of the novel. To this end, if I were to attempt to read a fiction novel in the same way that I read a history book, I will do a disservice to the author, to the book, and to myself because I'm not going to come to the conclusions that the author desired for me to draw. I'll fail to understand its meaning and glean its purpose. Now, a book of poetry, much the same way. If I were to take a book of poetry off the shelf and I were to attempt to read it like a novel 
or attempt to read it like a history book, I'm going to be really confused, right? Poetry is heavy with symbolism, with metaphorical language, with allegory. Poetry is not about information as much as it's about emotion. Poetry is rhythmic. It will sacrifice clarity of language for clarity of structure, for parallelism of sound. If I were to attempt to, to conflate those, I, I would get myself into some trouble, right? The Bible is a book of many different styles. The Bible is not just a book of a single type of literature. The Bible contains portions of prophecy, of poetry, of narrative. Jesus often told parables. Ezekiel wrote in parable form. Jeremiah wrote in parable form. The Psalms are poetic. The Proverbs are proverbial. We see Psalms in Exodus. The Song of Moses. The Song of Miriam. And each one has a different, it's a different genre of literature. And we, are, we, we need to approach it differently if we're going to understand it properly. With each style, as it changes, we must alter or add to the rules with which we interpret the Bible. And so we always follow the foundational assumptions. We always default to that literal, grammatical, historical, contextual, prayerful interpretation of the Word of God. But then we layer on top of these methods the individual rules that govern each type of communication in order that we don't misread the author's intent. This happens all the time today, doesn't it? In fact, it's a major point of contention and division in our culture over the past couple of decades. We've seen it heavily in the last year. A well-known or an influential person says something publicly which was meant as a joke or said sarcastically or said in a tongue-in-cheek manner. And the man's enemies, knowing full well that he was speaking tongue-in-cheek, as we call it, will choose to interpret his words literally, though everyone knows they should not be interpreted literally, in order to call him a bad person. Or a person says something literally, and what he literally said is good, but the, his enemies don't want him to say anything good, so they misinterpret what he said, and they cast a different shade on it. They interpret it allegorically, metaphorically, uh, comparatively, in order to try to skew his words. This is an intentional use of the wrong form of interpretation in order to prop up one's own narrative, one's own ideas, Right? So we know this, and, and we see how this happens naturally all around us. You can listen to what a man says, hear what people say about it, and say, uh, that, that, but that's not what he was saying. If you listen to what he was saying, that's not what he was saying. How can we come to two entirely different conclusions about a man's words like that? Well, because we're using different methods of interpretation, and we can do that. It's within the realm of, of, of our privilege to do so, except that we know that when that man said his words, he was anticipating, he was saying them within the context of him anticipating you receiving them in the method of interpretation that he's giving them. And if you fail to understand the author's intent, you'll fail to understand the author's meaning and you do a disservice to the author or to the speaker. And this happens with the Bible all the time, either intentionally or unintentionally. Some people do this in order to prop up their own ideas. They start with their own doctrine and then they interpret Scripture into their doctrine by using different forms of communication that are not intended in the text or by the author. Others simply do this by ignorance or by misunderstanding, accidentally 
in, uh, applying interpretive principles that don't really fit into, the, 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 into that area of the scripture. And of course, never forget that we're all human, right? And sometimes we're just going to disagree about which rules need to be employed in which times. And that's a part of the human experience. That's a part of living life as fallible, mortal humans. Our, our minds are fallible. They are, they, they, they are limited. And those limitations are going to mean we're not always going to be right and we're not always going to agree. So, throughout this journey, we began with that foundation of Bible interpretation. Then we considered the general rules. I'm not going to review it all this morning. I've reviewed it several times. I'll review it again, but, but um, for sake of time, I'm not going to review it this morning. Then we considered last week that general framework within which we interpret the Bible, which today is labeled as uh, dispensationalism. This week we're going to consider, and next week, the specific rules that we use when we are interpreting prophetic utterances in the Bible. From here, we'll move on to to two major themes. We're going to intertwine them, the kingdom and and the covenants, together over two weeks. Then I'll give you a broad summary of last things. We'll just go through those last seven years uh, from beginning to end. I'm not going to substantiate it. I'm just going to teach it. And then we'll start in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll walk through Revelation. And and while doing that, um, I will also bring in, of course, Daniel and Ezekiel and all of the prophecies, and we'll just dig into it deeply with clarity. And if this sounds exhausting to you, know you're in good company. It sounds exhausting to me, too. As a matter of fact, when, I, when, when the Lord laid this series upon my heart, I said, Lord, really? Are you going to make me work that hard for the next many months? Um, but, but it is what we are going to do. Let me begin with, with a few general comments. Today we're going to talk... Uh, the, the, Today I'm going to give you a lot of information, and it's not all going to necessarily come together until next week, all right? So this is a two-part message, and bear with me. I'm going to give you information today, and then next week I'm going to add more information, and then we're going to bring it together to help you understand where we're going with this and, and where all of these things apply to prophecy as a whole. But I'd like to begin by talking about how time works in prophecy. We know that God is above time, right? God is not beholden to time. Whereas we think, see things one after another, God is, sees everything, right? He's in the beginning and in the end. If we think of, of God in this way, God is above time, so God sees the entire timeline. We're right here in the timeline, and God sees us, and God's there with us, but He's also with us in eternity future, and He's with us in eternity past. He, he's, he's in all of it at the same time. Time does not apply to God. He created time. He is above time. And so prophecy, time in prophecy is different than we might interpret time in a natural way today. With a few notable exceptions, very notable exceptions, where God gives us a timeline, namely the seven years of tribulation, the 70 weeks of Daniel. We'll talk about those more uh, as we get into them in the weeks to come. Uh, Time in general is very loose in prophecy. There's a very loose concept of time. Uh, What do I mean by that? Prophets, they often saw the future events that, that they saw in a present context, in a present culture. Consider the great prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 that we covered at Christmas time. Isaiah says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be 
upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Notice here how we see Isaiah, as he speaks of the gift of Messiah, speaking of him as a gift that is already given, though he was not there. And then speaking of that which the Messiah will do one day. We see in this, speaking of Messiah, both the present and the future tense. Elements of what is, elements of what will be. God very often did not reveal to the prophets specifically the times. As a matter of fact, First uh, Peter tells us that they would diligently search out the time and the manner of the, the things that had been revealed unto them. We see another insight into this in the, in, in the great prophecy of Messiah in Isaiah 53. Verse 5 says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Notice here that the majority of this verse is given as if it has already happened, as if it has been completed already. Now, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, right? So, prophetically, in, in, in the perspective of God, Jesus had been intended to be slain. He had been effectively slain from the very foundation of the world, knowing that time is a single thing to God. And yet in our linear timeline, Jesus had not, would not be slain for another 800 years at the time Isaiah is writing this. But since God is beyond time, He's above time, He gave the prophecy seeming to look back upon an event that is actually 800 years Away, And so we observe this, and as we observe these things, what, what we come to is a principle where we see prophecy more in the context of space than in the context of time. That as the prophet looked at his prophecies, he saw them. And he may have seen a sequence. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But there's no real relation to when these things were happening, just that they will happen. He saw the events in question, perhaps surrounding events, important milestones, but the only relation that, that the events definitely have to each other is that he's seeing them. He may see events one after another, but that doesn't mean that they are immediate in sequence. There may be days, there may be months, there may be years, and in fact, there are some prophecies that, that are millennia thousands of years between one element of, of, of a prophecy and the same prophecy, a different element of it. I'll show you some examples in a little bit. He isn't seeing these prophecies. The prophet didn't see these prophecies on a timeline. He's seeing them as events which proceed, proceed one after another. Perhaps we would think of it as the difference between a street map that we might get from a store or online and getting one drawn by a friend. If you get an official map, you print one off from the internet or you buy one at the store, it's going to have all the labels, right? Every street, landmarks. It's going to have a little key that tells you the distance, right? Uh, one inch is, is, is 10 miles or one inch is one mile, depending on how big the map is. It's going to have all of the particulars, all of the details, and it's going to have them to scale. But what happens if you ask your friend to draw a map Hey, could you draw a map to your house? Scale goes out the window. You don't need every street name. All you need are the names that matter from my house to your house. 
and you need the general direction when to turn, when not to turn. You don't need scale. You don't need landmarks, every landmark. You don't need every street. You just need the things that are, that are important to get you from point A to point B. This is kind of how God gave prophecy. He gave us enough to know it when we see it, but he didn't give us everything. He didn't give us every street name. He didn't give us the scale. He just gave us the general map of point A to point B and how to know it when we see it, right? So you're driving up, there's the McDonald's. I know where I am now, right? That's the idea. That's what I'm looking for. And I see it and I know it when I see it. To this end, God oftentimes just showed the prophets major milestones in the prophetic plan. And this means there may be significant gaps in the prophet's understanding in time, in sequence, and even in the events themselves. The prophet may have known that something was going to happen, but he did not know how it was going to happen necessarily or when it was going to happen. Let's use a couple of prophecies to round out our understanding of this. In Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 31, we read this. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. Here we see a prophecy of the last days. In Joel, as Joel is looking at this prophecy or as he's penning this prophecy, he sees several events. He sees the Spirit pour out upon flesh. He sees the children of Israel prophesying. He sees old men dreaming dreams. He sees the Spirit fall upon the servants just as it falls upon the nobility. But then he also sees wonders in the heavens, right? He sees blood and fire and pillars of smoke. He sees the sun darkened. He sees the moon turned to blood. And then at, at some point after all of these events, the, the great and terrible day of the Lord, right? The final return of the Lord, the coming of God. Now, Joel does not speak of any time element, except that these events are yet future and that they will take place before the Lord's return. So if we're going to consider this in light of our understanding of prophetic revelation, we would regard the prophet as seeing many of events combined together into a single prophecy. So the prophet saw one prophecy, but that prophecy had two elements to it. It had a spirit element and it had a wonder element. The spirit element, this will be indicated by the, the, by the, the children of Israel prophesying, by the dreaming of dreams, by the spirit being poured out, falling upon people of all classes, of male and female, of rich and of poor, and the spirit falling upon these men. And then the second thing that he saw were wonders in the heavens. He saw blood and he saw fire and he saw the sun darkened and the moon to blood and, 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 and pillars of smoke. But this is one prophecy, right? It's just a few verses of Scripture, 28, 29, 30, 31, four verses of Scripture all together, one prophecy of the things that would take place before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Except that these four verses actually speak of two very distinct events. One of those events has already taken place. The other one has not separated by, at this point, 2,000 years of history. Let me show you. Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 22, the Bible says this, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. 
For these are not drunken. This is after the Spirit fell upon them and they started speaking in tongues at Pentecost. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit. And they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass, that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves know. And, and Peter continues. I'm not going to continue to read there. But you see how, how that, that Peter, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, on that day of Pentecost, links the events of that day to Joel, right? He even quotes it. He quotes it verbatim. There's no uh, getting around the fact that he's quoting there what we read in Joel chapter 2. So the Spirit of God fell upon the 70 in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. They began to speak in tongues. The people seeing this thought they must be drunk. <laughs> Peter says, nope, they're not. We're not. This is the manifestation of the Spirit of God as prophesied in Joel chapter 2. But you know what's interesting is that we don't have any record of the sun darkening, of the moon turning to blood, of pillars of smoke and of fire and of blood. Yet. But we do read about these things. Where do we read about them? In the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation 6.12 And I beheld, and he opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. Revelation 9, verse 2. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. These are the events of Joel 2, are they not? Spoken very clearly. Found in Revelation 6 and Revelation 9. Events that are yet to take place. This is Joel in the Old Testament seeing a set of events that will take place before the day of the Lord and prophesying of the set of events before the day of the Lord. But the signs that he saw happened in 33 AD. And the wonders he saw in 2018 AD have yet to take place. So as Joel was looking at this prophecy, we often consider it like a man that's standing on a hill. Standing on a mountain, if you climb to the top of a mountain and you look out at the expanse, if you've ever been out where there are actual mountains, uh, Colorado or even, even uh, the Appalachian Mountains in Georgia, yes, I'm acknowledging that they're mountains. Uh, my wife and I have had, had, had a, a thing about this for a little while because I grew up in Colorado and she grew up in Georgia and my mountains were clearly better than hers, right? And so, uh, so uh, I have my Rocky Mountains and she has her Appalachians. And, and yet, on either one, you stand at the top of one of those hills. If it's a bald, then you can actually see something in Georgia. Uh, but you stand above tree line in Colorado, right? And you're looking out at those mountains, and you see peak and peak and peak. You see the valley that's before you. 
Then you see mountain and mountain and mountain and mountain, and you don't see any of the other valleys. You don't know if those valleys are big or small. You don't know if, if it's just a mountain and a mountain and, and, and two peaks. For all you know, you have no idea what's behind each of those mountains. What you see are the peaks. And you can identify those peaks, and you can recognize that one peak is a little closer than the other peak, but you're still just looking at peaks. If we think of this in the sense of Joel, Joel was looking at, he was standing on the prophetic mountain looking at the peaks, and one peak was the spirit falling on men, and, and, and there was a peak of, of, of um, prophecy, and there was a, a peak of visions. And then a little bit farther back, perhaps, there was a peak of these wonders of blood and of fire and the, the sun turning to, to, to darkness and the moon turning to blood. And he just sees them all. And he says, this is what I see before the day of the Lord. But in fact, there's a valley between the signs and the wonders, isn't there? There's a valley between the spirit falling and the wonders in the heavens. And to this day, that valley is about 2,000 years wide, if we think of time in that way. That's the idea. That's, that's how we, we need to consider. When, when we consider prophecy, we need to be careful with, we need to be so careful with time, folks. Be so careful with time. I was just thinking the other day about, you know, each generation thinks that theirs is the generation where the Lord will come, and, and that's by design. And we're seeing things happening, and, and, and we see things happening in Europe and whatnot, and depending on who you think um, Antichrist kingdom will, will be and, and who Antichrist will be and all of those different things, everyone has different theories about this stuff. Uh, but we're in such an interesting time, and I'm jumping ahead of myself here, but we're in such an interesting time in that Europe is collapsing, and for years, Orthodox Christianity has seen Europe as a very important part of that final Roman empire of Antichrist, of the Western world empire. But Europe is being overrun, and their culture is dissolving. And if European culture dissolves entirely, they're no longer a part of the Western culture that we see reflected in prophecy. What happens then? But see, time is ebbing and flowing and cultures are coming and going. And, and the prophets, what they saw were the events. And we don't know how those events are going to fit in. And, and, and we, we know in hindsight, we can look at prophecies that weren't fulfilled at the time of Joel or, or, or the prophets and are fulfilled now and say, okay, that's how God did it. Well, that makes sense. But the stuff that's yet to come, there's so much that's still in flux because history is so dynamic, Right? But what we see here is that time, as given in prophecy, is a very loose thing. I'm going to give you one more example. Luke chapter 4. I preach, I'm preaching still, verse by verse, in, in the evenings through Luke. Uh, it's been a long time since we were in Luke 4. Um, we're in Luke 20 now. But, um, but I, in, I mentioned this when we were there in Luke 4, but let's, let's talk through it. And uh, the Bible says, And there was delivered unto him, that would be Jesus, and he's reading in a, in, in a synagogue. There was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Esaias, which is the Greek rendition of Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of the sight of the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, 
this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Jesus reads this portion of Isaiah 61 and he says, today this prophecy is fulfilled. But you know what's interesting about that prophecy? Jesus didn't read the whole prophecy. He didn't read the whole prophecy. Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 3 says this. The highlighted part is the part Jesus read. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Jesus stopped short of reading that entire prophecy. Jesus stops after the promise that Messiah would proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He stops just before the part where all of Israel is restored and blessed. Because that part hasn't happened yet. That's why I preached dispensationalism before this message last week. Because we see that there are ages and epochs and that God has a plan and that those pl- that plan is broken up into ages. And here we see that Isaiah gives one prophecy, but only the first part of that prophecy was fulfilled in that day. So the prophet Isaiah is looking at the prophecy and he sees the preaching of the, of, of the gospel and then he sees judgment and with that judgment, mercy and, and, and restoration. He sees them both on that day. It's Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. It's one prophetic utterance. The Messiah would preach the good news. He would heal. He would set at liberty. And then he would come to preach vengeance and justice. He would right every wrong. And then he would redeem his people. It's thus not surprising that the nation of Israel regarded Messiah's coming as only one event because Isaiah in prophecy gave it as only one event. But time is not that way in prophecy. Subsequent revelation, revelation that is progressively added over time, teaches us that judgment will come at Jesus' second advent. So as Isaiah is looking at this prophecy, he sees one box, one prophecy of the gospel and of judgment, of the good news and of the, the, the deliverance of God's people. He sees two peaks here, right? One peak where Messiah preaches the gospel, one peak where Messiah judges the world and redeems his people. He didn't see the valley in between. He couldn't see the valley in between. He didn't know how big that valley was. It may have been that the gospel gave way in in moments to the judgment, that the gospel gave way in moments to deliverance, or it may be that that valley is, to this point, 2,000 years long. Isaiah didn't know. Now, historically, we know that the time between these two peaks is, to this point, 2,000 years long. And so we relate that to prophecy and we understand that this is how prophecy works. Time in prophecy understood more through space than through time itself. I hope that those illustrations made it somewhat clear to you. The second element I want to talk about is dual fulfillment in prophecy. Similar to how time in prophecy functions, we can see several times in prophecy where a circumstance is fulfilled twice. In history, 
The first is generally much closer to the people that are receiving the prophecy. It, it perhaps fulfills the prophecy, but not in its fullness. It is meant to validate that this prophecy is, is real and is happening. And that first prophecy helps us understand the nature of the second prophecy. That the first one is fulfilled and is fulfilled literally tells us this, that, 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 that the, the future fullness of that same prophecy will be fulfilled literally and fully as well. So the near fulfillment gives the reader validation that the far fulfillment will take place in a similar way that the prophetic signs and wonders were meant to validate his message. Now, oftentimes a prophecy would serve then in this way, both for the people of that day and for the people through the near fulfillment and for the people of a much farther day, typically the church, through the farther fulfillment. In this scenario, the prophet sees one event. He's looking and he sees one event. At some point after that prophecy, the event takes place. And it mirrors the prophecy very well, but maybe not perfectly. Then, after that, there's further revelation given in the scriptures that indicates that the prophecy has actually not been fulfilled yet. And we say, well, wait a minute. That event in history perfectly or very closely mirrors this prophecy. How can you say it hasn't happened yet? Well, because that one is intended to be a glimmer of that which is to come. The first fulfillment, the near fulfillment, is a smaller, minor fulfillment of a much greater one to come. Perhaps the best example of this in Scripture is in Daniel 11. Daniel 11 is a portion of Scripture that speaks of a set of historical events that would take place about 500 years after Daniel prophesied. Daniel describes in detail the fall of the Medo-Persian Empire and the rise of the Grecian Empire. That's with Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great does a very swift campaign. He conquers the known world. He, he takes over and then he, he summarily dies. And after he dies, his, his empire is divided among his four generals. And his four generals each take a portion of his kingdom. One of the two of these kingdoms are Syria in the north above Israel and Egypt in the south. They are both now Grecian kingdoms under Grecian kings. And as we go through history, we find that Syria and Egypt battled for, for power. And while they were battling for power, what's right in the middle between those two nations? Well, there's Israel, right? Right in the middle. So Israel is kind of the punching bag of each of these powers as they're trying to hit each other. And Israel goes through a time of very, uh, very difficult time. Toward the end of this time, in, in 160, 170, 180 BC, we find a man named Antiochus. He is the king of Syria, Antiochus IV. He called himself Epiphanes. And he goes down to Egypt. And as he's on his way down to Egypt, he, he meets with a man who is an emissary of Rome. Now, Rome at this time was not the empire that we think of it. They were, they were getting there. But at that time, Rome was powerful and they were not to be messed with. And he meets this emissary of Rome and this emissary says, Egypt is under our protection. You need to turn and go home. And Antiochus knew that he could not defeat both Egypt and Rome. There was no way. Rome was up here. Egypt's down here. Syria's right in the middle. There's no way he could fight that battle on two fronts. So he goes home, but he goes home very grumpy because he's just been turned away. And as he's very grumpy, he takes out his anger on this little nation that's under his thumb 
called Israel. We read about this in Daniel chapter 11, verses 30 and 31. Notice what it says. For the ships of Shittim, that would be the area that is Rome, shall come against him. Therefore he shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the holy covenant. So shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the holy covenant. And arms shall stand on his part and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength and shall take away the daily sacrifice and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. So we see this prophecy, and as prophecies are, it's somewhat metaphorical. It's using symbolic language. We would expect that in prophecy. Uh, of the ships, of the ship, ships from Shittim, and they come, and they have indignation against the Holy Covenant. That would be against God's people. And they get intelligence from those that forsake the Holy Covenant, those in Israel who are loyal to their overlords in Syria, which there was a large group. We'll talk about them next Sunday evening. Uh, the Sadducees came out of that group. And these people said, Israel is, is not following your, your instructions, your commands. They, they're, they're rejoicing in your defeat. And he gets angry at them. And so he comes against the sanctuary of strength. That's the temple. And he stops the daily sacrifices in the temple. And he places in the temple an abomination of desolation. So this is what da da Daniel tells us. 500 years before these events take place. What actually takes place? Antiochus comes back and he hears from these loyalists that the people are rejoicing in his defeat. So he slaughters many of the people in Jerusalem. He sacrifices a pig, which is an unclean animal, right? In Jewish Mosaic law, he sacrifices a pig on the altar, thus desecrating the altar. And then he erects a statue of Zeus in the holy place saying, now you are all Hellenists. You're all going to worship Greek gods. He was tried to stamp out the, the Judaic religion. This is very, very similar to what we read here, isn't it? To where in history, the history books of the Jews call Antiochus the abomination of desolation. They call him that. This is a very clear parallel to what happened. And yet, Jesus when he's preaching in Matthew 24, says this, verses 15 and 16, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Jesus is speaking of the end times here. And he says the abomination of desolation is something that is still coming, is yet to take place. And notice that little parenthetical, whoso readeth, let him understand. See, because every Jew that's reading Matthew, Matthew was written to the Jews, right, to convince them that Jesus is Messiah. Every Jew that's reading Matthew, when they read that the abomination of desolation is a future event, they're going to say, wait a minute, Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV in 168 BC. They have an entire holiday surrounding the event. Hanukkah. Hanukkah is about when in 165 BC they cleanse the temple from Antiochus. That's what Hanukkah is about. So they learn this stuff. Wait a minute, what do you mean the abomination of desolation is still yet to come? When the prophecy of Daniel is so clear. It's already happened. Dual fulfillment. It happened in the near, and because we can look back in our history books and we can say this happened, we can look forward and say it's going to happen. 
The near fulfillment validates the far fulfillment. The, the small fulfillment. And if you continue reading in Daniel 11, there's a very distinct point where as the abomination of desolation, as this, this man is being described, you start saying, uh-uh, this does not fit Antiochus anymore. We've just gone to a different person. Well, does that mean Antiochus was not anything? No, it just means that at that point, Daniel's now describing Antichrist. Daniel's describing the, the, the abomination of desolation that is to come. So that's the idea of dual fulfillment. Daniel is looking. He's giving one prophecy. He sees one man. He sees one event. He sees one thing happening. But that one prophecy represents two distinct events in history. One that has already taken place in 168 BC and one that will take place in some nondescript time, some unknown time, in the future. And this leads us to one final thing this week. I only have one more that I want to talk about this week. I'll talk about a couple more next week, and then we'll talk about the rules. This final concept is the relationship that we call a type, anti-type relationship. In the Bible, a type is designated as a representative, uh, an Old Testament representative of a person, an event, or an institution that represents some New Testament idea, person, event, or institution. The Old Testament is called the type, the thing in the Old Testament, and the thing in the New Testament is called the anti-type. The Old Testament type is something real in history. It actually was. It existed. It happened. But God had divinely ordained it to teach or to represent some higher truth in the New Testament, the anti-type. And take note, we're not just saying that the Old Testament thing is similar to the New Testament thing. We'll talk about that next week when we talk about symbols. Not that there are just parallels between them or that we can draw comparisons, but that the type-anti-type relationship is an ordained, a God-ordained relationship between two persons, events, or institutions, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. It's a prophetic idea that the Old Testament type prophesized of the New Testament reality. A type is predictive in nature. It exists to teach us about that which it typifies so that we can actually learn about the character of the anti-type by studying the character of the type. This relationship, therefore, in the Bible is not everywhere. We need to be careful with this relationship. There are several established rules to this relationship uh, that we have. Uh, there's a definite relationship between the type and the anti-type in truth and in principle. They don't just relate in idea, but they relate in intent, in, te in the teaching of truth and in principle. There's a parallel, a harmony between the historical setting of the type and the anti-type. There's, there's a, a historical parallel between them. Uh, that the type foreshadows the anti-type, not just illustrates it. That, the, that you can actually see a foreshadowing of the anti-type in the New Testament by what we read about in the Old Testament. Uh, that the anti-type heightens or fulfills the type. The anti-type is superior to the type. That the, the New Testament anti-type is a greater reality to the Old Testament type. And this is very important. That, that the, there's a definite fulfillment. We can see the link between one and the other. It's not just a symbol. It doesn't just illustrate a concept. We see a prophetic foreshadowing of the event. Number five, there's a clear divine design between them. We see the marks of God's design. And then finally, the New Testament designates a relationship in some way. 
there's a link in the New Testament that shows this relationship to be valid. Now, these rules are very careful rules. Not everyone holds to these rules. I, I back off on types because I believe that the prophetic element means we need to be careful with them. Some people are much more loose on the type-anti-type relationship, and that's fine. You know, we, we don't need to argue over those things. We're, we, we don't need to split hairs over those. But in my opinion, better to just see similarities and to say those are similarities and to miss a type than to see a type that's not there and to actually impose prophetic fulfillment on something that's not really a prophetic fulfillment, to add weight to something that deserves none. Let me give you some examples of type-anti-type relationship. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle was a type of Christ as the believer's access to worship and fellowship. Um, I give you the Exodus and Leviticus, of course, describes the tabernacle. Hebrews 10, 8 through 10, describes Jesus as that fulfillment. Uh, we see it in the furniture. We see it in the, the, uh, the, the table of showbread, the altar of incense. Uh, we see it in the, the, the candles. We, of course, we see it in the veil. We see it in the holy place. We see it in the Ark of the Covenant. We see it in the altar, in the laver. It is all representative of elements of Christ as our access to God's worship. That's why when Jesus died on the cross, the, 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 the veil of the temple rent in two, indicating to us that access to the holy place was now given through Christ. Christ is the veil through which we enter. Hebrews 8-10 through 10 makes that clear. The tabernacle prophesied of Christ. It's a prophetic, clear relationship. Type, anti-type. Tabernacle's the type. Christ, His worship, our access to that worship is the anti-type. Passover lamb in Exodus 12. A very clear type of the anti-type in 1 Corinthians 5-7 that Jesus is our Passover, right? John saying, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world when He baptized Jesus. A very clear type-anti-type relationship. The Passover lamb prophesied of Jesus prophesied of Jesus. The whole Jewish worship system, the Jewish feasts, uh, we'll talk about this uh, again in a moment. Uh, The whole Jewish feast system is a prophetic timeline. It's God's prophetic timeline. We're in between Pentecost and the day of, uh, and the, 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 um, show, the, the, the day of trumpets at this point. That's where we are in history right now, right? And we can, we'll, we'll talk about that perhaps when we get to Revelation. We're not going to dig into it. Uh, Jewish offerings, all of the different offerings, the trespass offering and the thank offering, all of those, those Jewish offerings, Leviticus 1 through 5, uh, show various elements of Jesus' work on the cross as we read about it in, in Hebrews 10 through 13. Each one of these is actually a prophecy that was fulfilled. They're, they have a prophetic element. They, they serve their own purpose in history, but they had a prophetic element to them. Now, there are some yet future type-anti-type relationships. We mentioned Antiochus. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't give you all the references here. I I omitted a couple here. But um, Antiochus is a type, and and Antichrist is the anti-type to that. Antiochus is a type of Antichrist. Daniel 11, Revelation. Noah's Ark, the flood in Exodus chapter 6 through 11, is a type, is a prophecy of salvation and judgment. We see that linked to in Matthew 24, 1 Peter 3, 2 Peter 2 and 3, Jude. That, that the flood represents God's great judgment upon mankind. There's a prophetic element to it. The Jewish feasts, I just mentioned that, um, found in Leviticus 1 through, or in, in Exodus and Deuteronomy, Leviticus, um, we see God's prophetic timeline. 1 Corinthians 5, 15, Hebrews 8, Hebrews 9. So it is that these type-anti-type relationships help us 
as we seek to understand the fullness of the timeline, the events, and the concepts that God has given us in prophetic revelation. And in each case, once the type-antitype relationship is identified, we're then able to understand some deeper things about the antitype by understanding some things about the character of the type itself. And because we do so, because we interpret the character of the type into the antitype, it's important that we don't just call anything a type-antitype relationship, right? Because we are imposing new, revel- new understanding, not new revelation as in divine revelation, but new understanding of that which is to come by that which has already been. And that's, we, need to, we need to guard that relationship because of that, that nature. So we'll talk more about this next week. We'll talk about symbols and parables, and then we'll see how they all come together to bring about a consistency in interpretation, which is what we're looking for, giving us a measure of confidence that we can rely upon our method of interpretation as everything, as our, our method of parable interpretation checks out, and our type antitypes check out, and our time and prophecy check out, and it all comes together to create a consistent interpretive method. We say, okay, this checks out. Now, as we close today, I want to... I've given you a lot to think about. I have been for the last several weeks. But I want to change direction here for just a moment. Um, I've been in lecture mode, and uh, teach mode, if you will, for the last several weeks. We've got several more weeks of that left. It's not necessarily a place I'm most comfortable being on a Sunday morning, and that has probably come across in how apologetic I've been um, throughout it. Um, I I like to leave you with something to take with you as you go. I, I, I don't just want to lecture you. We are not here just to learn information. That, that doesn't, that's not enough. We have other, certainly other services when I'm in one of these sort of teaching modes where you can still get that, right? We're still going verse by verse on Sunday night. We'll get back into verse by verse on Sunday morning in a few weeks. So there's still opportunities for that. But I want to take a moment as we think of all this information that you've been given to remind you of something. And that something is something that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 4. He said this. He said, Would to God ye could bear with me a little in my folly and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. So your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if, he, or if ye receive another spirit which ye have not received, or another gospel which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. Paul here is writing to a very intelligent academic group of believers there in the capital of Achaia, exhorting them to remember something. And it's an exhortation I want to give you this morning as well. One of Satan's greatest tactics, I believe, in the church at least, is to get us so focused on the academic stuff, the ins and the outs, the nuances, the mind, the learning, the the, the thinking stuff, that we lose focus of the scripture and its simplicity. That's why I'm always a little bit, when I, when I actually reflect to you uh, some, some of the deeper elements of my study, which I was told never to do when I was in seminary, by the way, I'm always a little bit hesitant 
because what I don't want and what is epidemic in the church today is academic learning at the expense of spiritual power. God forbid. God forbid that we fill our minds with the information while our hearts grow cold. As we study, we get deeper. We build knowledge upon knowledge. We get to the point where we know so much that we can become useless to Christ because we're so busy learning that we never outdoing. God forbid. The knowledge of stuff can distract us from the knowledge of Christ. God forbid. I'm teaching you things over this month, over next month. They're academic things. I hope you're learning. I hope it's helping. I hope it's making your, your study better. I hope that, that it's making your understanding of why we are where we are better. And we need that. The young people need that. Why are millennials leaving the church hand over fist today? It's because they didn't get answers as kids. They didn't get answers. So I want you to have answers so that you don't say, well, pastor must not have answers. I sat under him for 10 years and I never heard any answers. I don't want that. God forbid. But, but, don't be frustrated, please. On two, on two counts. First, don't be frustrated if some of this stuff just doesn't compute. That's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm giving you a bunch of stuff. Whatever sticks, sticks. Whatever doesn't, that's okay. Also, don't, don't lose sight of what we are actually doing here. We're not here for an academic exercise. That's not what we're here to do. If you never knew any of this stuff, but you go out there every day and you spread the gospel and you serve the Lord with gladness and you love the brethren and you raise godly families and you just read this book as it's supposed to be read, you'll, you'll, you'll probably do pretty, pretty well. Paul said in Romans 14, 17 that the kingdom of God is not in meat and in drink but in righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. At the end of the day, we do want to learn more but the point of this learning is not to learn. The point of this learning is to be more like Christ. To be more like Christ. Now, I'm not telling you this stuff is useless. If it was useless, I wouldn't be telling it to you. But let it not distract us from the simplicity that is in Christ. If all of your time is spent in the books so that none of your time is spent serving, you probably need to rethink your spiritual priorities. Because if we aren't touching others, then this knowledge is of very little value to us, right? This knowledge is meant to pass on. That's why we learn. We learn so that we can exemplify Christ, so that we can tell others of Him, so that we can have answers for the hope that lies within us. Let us not be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And I, 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 I pray to God that, that I would not be a part of that because there is a danger in our age in particular, this information age, that people can get so caught up in learning about stuff that they forget about the Christ behind it. So let us keep it in its proper place. We'll do a part two next week. We'll have a couple more weeks of learning of these things, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get a little bit more. Um, we'll, we'll start walking through the text verse by verse and, and uh, start bringing in some of those application elements again. But let's allow the Spirit of God still to keep our hearts on the simplicity that is in Christ even as we're learning some of these deeper things.